Hello. The whirling electronic firestorm of information blazes past as you desperately try to resolve the elements of light and colour into coherent thought. Eventually a pattern emerges. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and Western Union messenger, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's subject is the 1979 satirical comedy drama Being There, starring Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine. And my returning guest is Chris Arnsby, so huddle around your transceiver to listen in on what happened in his parlour. Chris, hello again. Hello. Now, I only finished watching this movie earlier today, so it's still very fresh in my mind, just as I try and turn my phone off. Um, uh, I'd seen it a number of times before. It's um, Being there is, I think, perhaps better known than a lot of the films we've covered on this podcast. Would but, you agree, perhaps? Well, it's, it's, it's another one I haven't seen. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> yes, well, this is true. I mean, I, 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 I haven't seen Goodfellas or anything like that, but I have seen both Brady Bunch films, so... <sighs> something... It's like you were born to be on this show. <laughs> Possibly. Um, I'd, I'd heard of it. Um, in fact, funnily enough, I watched it on Thursday, and then... Uh, Today's Saturday. So yes, so. yeah. And then I was speaking to my parents, and mentioned that I'd seen the film and my my dad's response was oh that film's a bit of a dog isn't it uh, so I think it is reasonably well well known um, but if anything it's it's largely well known for the final shot which I'm sure we'll talk about later yes um, it's not quite I, yeah, I haven't seen Being There but I have seen Peter Sellers last film the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu now that Oh, it's, I think this is going to set a record for the quickest departure onto a tangent. Okay. Um, I've seen Phoenix Plotter Doctor Fumancho a couple of times, and I think it might be a candidate for this podcast mm. because it's bloody weird. Yes. And it's a film about a very frail, ancient man trying to live forever. And Sellers made it when he was dying of a, a horribly enlarged heart. Yeah. And is it Christopher Lee as the as Fu Manchu? No, it's Sellers. He plays he plays Fu Manchu and wow. the uh, detective Nolan Smith. He also fired the director and directed the movie himself. <laughs> so um, pretty much business as usual on a Peter Sellers set. Well, he did that quite rarely. Yeah. But um, the director was Piers Haggard, who'd done a lot for television. Um, he directed the um, revived Quatermass series. Oh, right. Uh, a couple of years earlier. Is Pete, is Christopher Lee even in the fiendish plot of Doctor Who? No. It's okay. The, he's, in, he's in other Fu Manchu movies. He's, he's in other the memory obviously, more serious ones. My memory's obviously cheating then. It's, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's David Tomlinson's last film as well. He, he died about 15 years later, but Sellers died before the film came out. Mm. And um, that one is a real dog. But it's so strange because Sellers was, I mean... I, I, to, to illustrate, I've brought along to this recording one of the biographies of Peter Sellers that I own. Mm. I own also it's Mr. Strangelove by Ed Sickoff, which is actually a really good book. Um, and I also have at home The Life and Death of Peter Sellers yeah. by Roger Lewis, which is the longest book I've ever read. Yeah, which is the one I've read, I think. It's 1,100 pages, and I read it in a week. It's yeah. absolutely comp- compulsive reading, and it's longer than Lord of the Rings. 
Um, so I'm fascinated by Peter Sellers as a man because he was such a unique individual. He mm. was so talented, but so troubled. I don't know if that's even the right word. Yeah, it's he, he. There was something wrong with his sense of self. Yes, which made him the perfect performer, but almost incapable of functioning as a human being. Aside from that, he used to. I think he used to joke about having had his personality removed or something. Do you know where he made that? Con- almost like a confession. Was it on the Muppet show? Yeah, he was being interviewed by Kermit the Frog. Yes. To his credit, Kermit looks quite freaked out by the uh, confession. I mean, Kermit, because Kermit is a real person, as we all know, Kermit is a very stable and well-balanced individual. And for him to be confronted by someone who is as as successful as Peter Sellers, well, Kermit is only a stage manager, he says, there used to be a me, but I had it surgically removed. That's terrifying. Yes. Even if you're not a frog. Yeah. And in a program supposedly aimed at children. Yeah, and it's not not easy being green either. It's also worth um, picking up the Spike Milligan War Diaries, if you haven't read those, because the later ones cover um, Spike Milligan's return from the war and his entry into showbiz. And and you do get um, a lot of stuff about the early days with Peter Sellers as well. And particularly was touching on Peter Sellers' relationship with his mother, which seems to be unconventional. They, yes, they were very, very close yeah. in a way that seemed a bit odd. Mm. I mean, it was... No, let's not say that it was in any way weird in a... Yeah. Listener, you know what I mean. But it was... A, I think he was... I'm, I'm close to my mum, but... Not in a way that's creepy. Yeah. And Peter Sellers' relationship with his mother was creepy. I think it bothered Spike Milligan, and for something to bother Spike Milligan, it must be seismic. It must be fairly odd. On it must be odd on a fairly seismic level. Well, the thing about Spike was that he he was mentally ill, but aside from that, he wasn't especially strange. No. I don't think. I mean, he acknowledged that he had mental mm. mental health issues. But, you know, he had a family who he loved and, you know, he had fairly conventional interests in many ways and Sellers, on the other hand, was rapaciously acquisitive Hmm. um, in terms of both property and people. But would instantly get bored with stuff, is that right? They'd buy cars and then get fed up with them. Yeah, and this goes back so far back that they would put jokes about this in the script for The Goon Show. But... Being there was Sellers' penultimate film, it was also his dream project for many years. He read the book by Jerzy Kaczynski when it was published in 1973. And he wrote to Kaczynski in the persona of the book's lead character. And for many years they worked on trying to get the film made. And eventually they did, about 1978, once Sellers had been able to recover his career. Because by the early 70s, after the Pink Panther movies, he'd had serious health issues. He'd had a string of heart attacks and had been clinically dead for several minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and after, after he managed to make a recovery from that, his career went downhill because he became incredibly difficult to work with. Famously, the disaster of the 60s version of Casino Royale. Yes. 
When I said disaster, you grinned. Did you know that I was going to say Casino Royale? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was. For, uh, I think at any time people start talking about films and Peter Sellers, Casino Royale is bound to come up because yeah. this was the film where he refused to appear opposite Orson Welles and wouldn't wear the colour green. Yes, he had been advised that the colour the colour green was the colour of death by his spiritual advisor, Morris Woodruff. I heartily recommend, incidentally, um, there's a kind of a film adaptation of The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Um it's not really a film adaptation but it's the story of his life as told in the style of a zany Peter Sellers comedy so Jeffrey Rush plays Sellers, he also plays Sellers playing other characters Hmm. intermittently as they speak the lines that Sellers himself would have given them so it has this quite complex central idea but it's a really extraordinary film, it's really well made and has an extraordinary cast and the the writers of that are now Marvel's top creative guys so it's it's an extraordinary film and Morris Woodruff is played by um, Stephen Fry but um, by the mid 70s the Pink Panther movies had restarted Um, they were hugely successful despite not being particularly good I like yeah, I know. Get, I know. I mean, the thing was, I remember them being on TV when I was eight, and they seemed like the funniest thing ever. I'm not sure going back to them whether I would find them that that funny these days. I I, I hope so. Um, I've certainly seen a shot in the dark subsequently, and I think that holds up fairly well. But that's virtually the first film, I think, isn't it? It's the second. Is it the second? The sixties. The two. The first two. The Pink Panther and the Shot in the Dark are great. Mm. Uh, Shot in the Dark was based on, was written by William Peter Blatty, of course, who well, yes. went on to write The Exorcist, which is also very slapstick. Yeah, a green, well, green suit flying around all over the place. Um, there's also the, the one that most people haven't seen, most people, the one that's sort of not often seen is Inspector Clouseau, yeah. which is the one with Alan Arkin as Clouseau. Yeah, I certainly haven't seen that one. I've seen it, and it's really odd because he does the Alan Arkin performance of this barely restrained hysteria, but as Clouseau, and it sort of works, but the rest of the film is quite dull. There's a scene where he and a villainous henchman are on a train together, and for some reason they get really caught up in playing jacks. You know, the, the, the yeah, game yeah, where yeah, the boys have to pick yeah. up the things. And they're both really, really into it as they're on the train. And Arkin is getting more and more over the... Well, not really over the top because it sort of fits in with his character. But he's more and more overexcited. And it's really fun to watch because you get the sense that he's really sort of getting into the character and, and really having fun with it. But apparently it was horrible to make and that's why they didn't make any more with him. Fair enough. <laughs> but then they revived it in the 70s yeah. and we have Return of the Pink Panther, yes. the Pink Panther and they become more and more painful. Revenge of the Pink Panther mm. is almost unwatchable. I remember there's 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 definitely even as a fairly undiscriminating sort of eight year old, there was a point where this film is not as funny as the other film. There's there's one particular film where Chief Inspector Dreyfus goes mad and has a laser gun that he uses to destroy the United Nations building. Yeah. I remember I liked the bit with the laser gun because it was a special effect, and I liked yeah. anything that had special effects in it. But the, and it does have the the the, the, the immortal bit where. Um, Clouseau meets an old man has a dog and Clouseau says oh does, does your I'm not going to do the accent does is your, that that, do, do, that's does, that does, does your dog bite no I reach down to pat the dog the dog bites him says I thought you said your dog doesn't bite this is not my dog I didn't but I suppose in a way that shows how interchangeable 
all the film because yeah. all the bits you think about, you know, do you have a license for that monkey or that they could pretty much come yeah. from any of the films. And it's there's lots of disguises, which isn't in the early movies, and it just becomes this this whirlwind mm. of stuff Sellers wants to do because he because had, he can he had because because they become so successful and he was so powerful again and he could just do anything he wanted mm. and he and Blake Edwards often didn't get on so there was the lack of direction I certainly didn't realise that this was a, film, a project that he had kind of instigated pretty much he, he was on board from day one um, almost pretty much when the book came out in 73 um, and he pushed for it to get made um, he got producers interested and, and he didn't have I don't think he had a say in the choice of director right. which is Hal Ashby but certainly it, it worked out very well and he was very happy with the film. Mm. He cited it as one of the, the few films he made that he was completely happy with. The film starts with an extremely gentle opening with a man asleep in bed, the television turning itself on on a timer to the sound of Schubert's Eighth Symphony. And he gets up, moves like someone who doesn't quite know how to walk and um, we sort of gradually find out a little bit about this man that he lives in this house he's almost there on his own he looks after the garden his meals are brought to him it's a very um, I th- it, it, there's a very long time at the start of the film with, without any dialogue relatively speaking I mean it's yes. sort of a, a good five minutes which is unusual for it's film. just sort of setting out the, the, the life of this character mm. who we no, eventually find out it's called Chance. It turns out he he's lived in this house his entire life. He's in sort of late middle age. And the old man who lived in this house has died in the night. Yeah, and it's very claustrophobic. That, I mean, I remember watching mm. it and, and get finding it oddly... At one point when he's out in the garden a plane goes overhead mm. and I'm assuming you've got to assume with films that en- anything that ends up on screen is deliberate um, and so I assume that was a deliberate choice that some either a plane flew overhead while they were recording that and they liked it or they dubbed the sounds in later but it's a very very odd moment because it's suddenly up to that point the film could have been set at any time except for the TV of course because the TV comes on so that, that dates it to colour television but you know it's an antique car that he claims at one point doesn't it yes and it's just it's a very very strange opening sequence I, I, I actually found myself feeling a bit shut in by it because you never see any anything beyond brick walls and except the television yes that's his, yes. That's his only window into the outside mm. world and that, yes I noticed I noted that um, he, he he tends the garden very carefully very professionally he also dusts this beautiful old car which has four flat tyres. Yes. But Charles doesn't think of anything other than the garden and the weather. He is a... In, I mean, in the, in the medical sense, he is a moral. Mm. He has little understanding of anything that happens around him. He watches television. He imitates what he sees. He doesn't know or understand anything beyond that. Yeah, and there's there's also no indication that anything he's... You see him, he sees the president on TV shaking hands and he copies the shaking hands gesture and then when the two lawyers turn up, he shakes hands in the same way. Yes. But there's not even an impression that these lessons kind of stick because 
he's obviously spent his entire life watching TV, but there's no sense that he's picked up other stuff from his, you know, I don't know. It's just a very, very timeless existence. And you get the feeling that this could have, this has obviously just been going on for decades. Yes. Well, it could be that he's never had occasion to use any other. Mm. I mean, he he's never met anybody. No, exactly. It's like it, after the old man dies, lawyers come to the house because the old man was relatively wealthy, and the house is going to be closed up and sold. And because Chance has no documentation that he's ever lived there, he is essentially being turfed out into the street. Um, the book it's about it's the it's, I did say it was based on the book. Hmm. The book I read to prepare for this podcast. I'm holding it now with. Two fingers. It's a pretty slender volume. It's barely 70 pages, and it's referred to as a novel. That's not a novel. Mm, that's a novella. It's a novella. Um, I think... Is Peter Sellers in a film called The Magic Christian? Or yes. Because that's also based on a very, very slender book as well, I think, because I've read the book of that. I can imagine... I've, I have that on DVD at home, and it's... <laughs> it's weirdly like a 60s jackass mm. stunt movie it's it's, it's a demented film um, it's the, I think the only film to star Roman Polanski Ringo Starr Yul Brynner and Graham Chapman yeah it's it's got a, a, an interesting cast doesn't it and supposedly John Lennon although it's actually an impersonator hmm. if that doesn't recommend it to you listener I don't know what will but the lawyers go to the house and they talk to Chance and they are they find him uh, difficult to deal with because he's very he's very pleasant he's very mild mannered he responds to all their questions but he doesn't see it, there, there is that gap where his his brain doesn't take things mm. he responds there is a recurring thing all the way through the movie where he says i see mm. i understand and you know that he does. Or he just says yes, yes. Yeah, he will just. So that's what people say when people when someone talks to you, when someone asks you a question. You say, "I see." You say, "I understand." He knows. He knows that. He doesn't know how to process anything that's going in. So they ask, "Oh, are you, are you going to be making a claim?" Said, no, I, I'm not going to be making a claim. And he winds up basically being turfed out into the street, and he goes out into the world for the mm. first time, and. We see the outside of the house, and it's in a slum. Yeah, and it's 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 quite a good gag actually because it's obvious that the world. This is a very nice house, but only on the inside. Yeah, and you was, you kind of assume because apart from the aeroplane noise, you haven't heard any other background noise. So you kind of assume that it's in the countryside or something, and it's actually it, it's a surprise to discover that it's yeah it's in the middle of this horrible location. But going back to that slightly claustrophobic feel you still don't know where it is um, and it's not till about 30 minutes in that you suddenly realise you're in Washington yeah when he's he's going out into the world and he just with his hat and coat on because his his clothes are all borrowed from the attic mm. they're all the old man's clothes so they're and the, one of the the lawyer the, the female lawyer mentions oh those it's great how those clothes have come back in style because they're <laughs> all these 20s double breasted suits which weirdly look made to measure on yeah, sellers, but they're actually supposed to belong to somebody else. Um, with his overcoat, his hats, umbrella, suitcase, walking out into the street into a, 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 a working-class black neighbourhood. I did notice there is a graffiti on the wall that oh, walks yes. past. 
Did you spot this? I saw the graffiti. I can't remember what it says now. It says, America ain't shit because the white man's got a god complex. Now, that I'm sure they just happen to be there. Mm. But the idea of race is quite notable during the movie and it doesn't really come up in the book. And in fact, how much... This whole scene was where he's walking through the city and the music, the fantastic choice of music... Mm. It's a funky 70s version of Alzo Sprach Zarathustra. It's the, the famous title music from 2001 as he's going on this odyssey yeah. through well, 70s America. I think it might... I, sorry, it's a dumb thing to say. I think it might be intentional, but I think it's meant to intentionally hark back to 2001. Oh, yes. Um, because even watching the opening sequence of the film, the use of classical music reminded me of 2001. And then you get the whole sequence where he's standing in front of a TV with a camera pointing out into the street, and he sees himself in the TV. And I think that's his 2001 black monolith moment. I think that's the moment when him seeing himself on the TV kind of has the same effect on him that the monolith has on the, the apes in 2001. So I think that's what... I, I th- that's a great theory. I think I disagree because... <laughs> he doesn't seem to understand no, the impact no. of that because he when he after walking the streets all day mm. he walks he walks up to one lady who looks who's because she's black she's black, she's yeah. black but like the maid who would look after and bring up his meals and he walks up to her and says excuse me I'm very hungry could you give me some lunch and she just sort of looks at him oddly and, yeah. and, and hurries away after walking the streets all day and we, as you say we we finally see that he's actually in Washington as we see him walking towards the Capitol building. He's standing in front of this TV shop as a video camera put in the street and he sees himself on the screen and he's very confused by mm. it. And he's bobbing and weaving around, a puzzled look on his face. He steps off the curb and a car reverses straight into it. Yeah. Now that whole sequence, all that walking through town, how much... How much space in the book do you think is devoted to that sequence? All that sort of groundwork and everything. It's going to be one or two things. I mean, it, it's either going to be a paragraph or it's going to be a massive chunk of the book. It's, it's kind of... Right first time. It is less than half a page. Yeah. He goes from stepping out of the door to being hit by the car in not only in less than half a page, but in, t- in, in, t- in story time maybe 10 minutes and oh, right. in the film so, it's all day yeah and I think I mean it really just underlines you can't wait to get to the rest of the story in the no. book <laughs> so we've only got 70 pages there's a, there's a paper shortage <laughs> well it was printed in the 70s yeah um, but just to, he he immediately lands on his feet he goes from having nothing and not understanding anything to, to potentially dying on the street of starvation mm. because he just can't understand the world he immediately lands on his feet because the car he's hit by is owned by the wife of the richest man in America there was a point I mean because I didn't know anything about the plot going into it I wasn't sure I, I, I think I knew the rough shape of the story so I knew that at some point he was going to ingratiate himself into uh, a rich family I couldn't work out how they were going to make the transition between him leaving the house and him moving in with the family. And I was getting oddly concerned that something terrible was going to happen to it. Oh. Um, just 
Because this is a guy that has no experience of the real world and doesn't understand. There's the whole sequence where he meets the gang and he's threatened with the switch. He's threatened with the switchblade, and his response is to pull out an object that I didn't recognise. I didn't realise till later that he'd, put, he'd brought his remote control with him. And he tries to change the channel. Yeah, because, yeah. It's, because it doesn't like. Yeah, because he doesn't, he doesn't like, like what he's seeing. Yes. And I kind of there was a part that I was worried that he's smartly dressed. He's carrying a briefcase. Is somebody going to jump him, mug him, and he's going to be sort of discovered wandering around yeah. in his underwear? And that was, I, I thought that was potentially how he might end up being adopted by this family, but no, it's not it's, really that kind of film in no, a way. No, it's because, because it has this satirical bent, mm. it's much more prosaic. Yeah, he's just accidentally hit by a car and, and his leg is injured. And so they say, ah, oh, we have ah, oh, we have to take you to a hospital. Oh, no, no, we have doctors back at the house. No, you you come come back to the house and we'll see the doctor and and we'll sort everything up. And there's the undercurrent of, don't sue us, please don't sue. But I suppose as well, it's important for the for the wife whose name escapes me, Temple Eve. Eve, oh, of course, yes, Eve. That's and right. And the book is in a in a, in a way that's fa- dated fantastically well. She's called E E. <laughs> but. It's important for her perception of the character. If they discovered him distressed because he'd been robbed, they wouldn't perceive him in the way that they do. They would they, they would see him as a victim. Mm. Whereas, of course, because he's then involved in an accident that's their fault and he's dressed smartly, they, they obviously they perceive him as being much more important than he yes. is. And that's that's how the, the whole story gets launched. So, yeah, it, actually, when you look back on it, the worry that something terrible was going to happen, it wouldn't work within the within the context not, of the story. Not the story they're trying to tell, no, but, right. it, but you didn't really know how the story was going to go. No. So, it, yeah, so everything was open. So they go back to the house and they... Um, oh, well, on the way, Eve offers Chance a drink. And he says, oh, yes, please, I'm, I am very thirsty. And she gives him a glass of whiskey, which he's never had before. She asks his name just as he's in the process of taking a drink. So he chokes on his drink, and as he's trying to say Chance the Gardener, it comes out as Chancey Gardener. And from then on, that's his name. Oh, that's my, oh that must be my name. They're, yes. they're telling me that's my name, so it must be. Because but, that's, it's, his brain is so... It's just this... Yeah, he just accepts everything yeah, that's... Uh, it's just like a yes-no switch. Um, they go back to the house, and it's this beautiful, gigantic, palatial mm. estate. And one thing that I loved, outside the gates... For this estate, there is a gas station and a McDonald's. Oh, I missed, didn't see that though. Um, and I'm sure that's absolutely real for the location, but it it made me think that that's the way that Chance is watching TV, totally undiscriminatory, mm. and just having input. So outside this beautiful palatial estate of the richest man in America is a McDonald's. Actually, it's worth... outside outside the old man's house. There's slums and I know people huddle around a burning brazier yeah it's these little outposts of comfort yeah wealth I'm not quite sure but yes there is this sense bubble yeah that that these people they live in their own insulated bubble but the world is going on outside my one my Wikipedia fact about this film when he's in the car he's what they 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 watch this very odd cartoon basketball jazz yeah yeah which um was a cartoon that was used to support a previous Hal Ashby film. Yeah, the last detail, mm. and it's a it's a Cheech and Chong song, <laughs> and this is the music video that went with it. And there's a par- I think there's a parallel there because it's about a 
a kid who's a great basketball player and he winds up within in the cartoon obviously he becomes giant and mm. winds up slam dunking the moon and I thought that's a little bit, bit like what happens to Chance because he just comes for nothing and he suddenly becomes this giant hmm yes you can see how the uh, how, how the idea would have appealed yeah, yeah. And, I mean the all the way through the movie or everything that's played on television every single clip was selected specifically hmm even if it's just background stuff that doesn't relate to anything. And the, the amount of work, the amount of detail is staggering. And I was really pleased to see that at the end credits, pretty much the, the first of the, of the end credits after the director's credit is video research. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that the, I think Diane Feierstein, I think her name is, gets a really prominent credit for the amount of work that she had to do in putting all this together. And it's, it's really impressive. Mm. But they're, they're brought into the house... Um, Chance is put in a wheelchair and they go in the lift and Chance is sitting in the wheelchair looking around the lift because he's never been in the lift of us. how long do we have to stay in here? because he doesn't understand well he's been told he's going for an x-ray or something so yes. I think he assumed I think he's thinking that this weird wooden room is part of the x-ray process yeah. or something, isn't it? Yeah. but the lift attendant thinks he means the wheelchair hmm. and they have this, um, this discussion at um, cross purposes um, the doctor examines Chance and finds out that you know, it's it's you know, it's a nasty bruise, it's a nasty sprain, but it's nothing serious. And he gently raises the question of legal action. And he, Chance says, "Ah, a lawyer. I'm, I'm my, I, my my brain says that I met a lawyer." He says, "Oh, I, I know a lawyer called Thomas Franklin." Oh, well, and although, oh no, there's not going to be any claim because that's what he remembers. Mm. This is the 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 ticker tape that comes out of his mind. But um, the Doctor, Dr. Allenby, who's an original character, is not in the book. Oh, OK. Um, which is weird, because he plays such a crucial yes, yeah. role in the story. How can he not be in the book? I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sure that Ben Rand, who's the owner of the house, has a Doctor, but he's not in any way significant. Chance, or Chancey, strikes him as slightly odd, in a way. There's something about him that's a bit off, yeah, that, he's he's that, that no one ever notices. It's be, because there's the whole business. He, he says um, you can pull your trousers up or something, but he, does he? He doesn't pull his trousers. I forget what. So he, what is this? You can pull your trousers up now. Oh, that's what I, I, I guess. Yes, I can. It doesn't mean he's going to. He ends no. up picking up a remote control and turning on the television. Yeah, and actually, I think later on when he turns up for dinner or something, he's still wearing his trousers when he's sitting in the wheelchair. <laughs> Oh, and as, as the doctor's leaving, he says, oh, it's, it's a probably a good idea to keep your weight off that leg. So he just goes up and Yes, yeah. Because, yes, that, yes, I have to do what I'm told to do. But they go down for dinner, um, and Chance meets Ben Rand, wealthiest man in America, very powerful old man. Um, now, the name Rand did tip off a few things. But, I mean, hmm. firstly, that mentions that um, as they talk they get the impression that Chance is actually a businessman. That when he says that all the, all the house was closed down by the lawyers, he means his business was. And so now all I have left is the room upstairs because they said oh, that he needs to stay a few days. And Ben Rand thinks that he means heaven mm. because Ben is extremely ill. Um, he's actually terminally ill. Uh, he suffers from aplastic anemia. But let's say the, the name Rand um, is quite loaded Yes, well, it, I mean, it immediately made me think of the Rand Corporation. Um, me too, yeah. 
Now, because I've done no research for this beyond looking up Hal Ashby on Wikipedia, um, I can't remember what the Rand corporate... But I remember about... In the late 60s, I think they were one of these think tanks, weren't they? Were they something to do with... um, sort of research into the prisoner's dilemma and whether it was possible to win nuclear war. I think they did a lot of fairly grim think tank stuff. Yes, it was a think tank set up uh, originally at the Douglas Aircraft Corporation to think through problems and how to apply them to government policy. And it's sort of the original corporate Hmm. think tank. And they are seen as having quite a bit of power I think particularly in the 80s particularly under Reagan's government mm. the other thing that came up was of course Ayn Rand yeah I hadn't I'd, I'd missed that but yes yeah you're quite right and that goes along then with some of the sort of social philosophy that he spouts about mm. people on welfare and things like that yes yeah, so there was a quote of his that said later that, they, that he has no time for he has no use for people on welfare but he admits that people on welfare have no use for him and I don't think he's quite as ex- I mean he's not a long way from being as extreme as Ayn Rand because Ayn Rand mm. was a complete fruitcake yes I think I can say quite confidently that yes she yeah. was she was a horrible lady <laughs> she and she a, had bad opinions yeah her whole philosophy that was based around self-interest yeah. being enlightened self-interest and, and looking yeah. after yourself but then she and, the, and that altruism was inherently evil but then she famously so far as I've read, had no problems with accepting welfare and things like that. So, yeah. Oh. Just a very, very... And, and Atlas Shrugged is a terrible book. I, You know it's been made into a trilogy of films. A, t- a trilogy of terrible films, and, appropriately. And each, uh, given that the whole point of um, her philosophy is that the, the free market is beyond question, mm. the fact that each film has made less and less money, and yeah. even to start with, they were gigantic flops. Yeah. Indicates that it's done. Yeah, um, the I mean the the person, of course, Ben Rand reminded me of Rupert Murdoch because that's obviously not intentional at the time. It's more no. just a coincidence of the fact that Ben Rand is an incredibly old, incredibly wealthy man, mm. as is Rupert Murdoch. That's just that's more sort of a coincidence than anything. But that's who I immediately thought of when Ben Rand came in. Basically, was oh this is this guy's like Murdoch. I think the difference is, as we're going to start slagging off Murdoch as well. Um, on a personal level, Rand is actually—he's very pleasant. Yeah, yeah, he's not. No, I mean, nobody. There were no villains in this film, and it, uh, well, I would say to the, the lawyer Thomas Franklin. I suppose is, he's a he's bit very—he's nice. a bit weaselly. Yeah. yeah, but the other thing that's—I don't think the film doesn't attempt to make any of the characters seem stupid. They've all got their own reasons for. Not um, picking up, not picking up on chance. They're all projecting what they expect. The fact that he sits and goes, "Yes, I see. Yes," and never he never disagrees with them. He only ever echoes what's said back, or he adds in sort of comments about gardens and things. Every and everybody just projects what they want to see onto him. So the film is actually quite careful not to make people seem stupid for this, and that kind of applies to every because the um, the butler in the lift begins to think that. Chance has got a fantastic sense of humour because he always makes these incredible jokes about the lift. Mm. And there's actually a scene later on, isn't there, where the, they're, sit, they're standing in the lift together and there's a period of silence and the butler suddenly starts laughing yeah. and says, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were going to make another another joke. Um, so he's preemptively laughing, yeah. which is 
horribly sycophantic. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... So yes, you are. I mean, Ben Rand is not... He's not in himself a bad person. It's um, his... He's, he's in a position where... I mean, he doesn't actually say that he's, he's considering starting up a fund mm. to, uh, to assist smaller businesses and it's, it's, they're a little bit vague about exactly what this entails mm. and I thought oh maybe it's going to be like, like a, a, f- a fund to give starter loans to new businesses well, that yeah. seems pretty reasonable it could, it could be. I mean, we're never told if the president is Democrat or Republican. I think you're meant no, to assume he's Republican, but... Because he has a very close relationship yeah. with the business community. But that's not necessarily... But no, but it, 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 he might not be, necessarily. It, its philosophy goes beyond something as simple as party politics. Because mm. the president at the time, of course, was Jimmy Carter. Yes. Who was relatively left-wing. Mm. And... Inevitably, quite unpopular. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. There were lots of. Uh, there's a joke in The Simpsons, isn't there, where they unveil a statue of Jimmy Carter and somebody says he's history's greatest monster. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and and that's the other thing. I don't know whether. Obviously, the book isn't paralleling the rise of Ronald Reagan as a politician because it's comes out in '73. But I don't know. With the film coming out in 79 and with Reagan then making noises about running for president, I don't know whether the idea of this this character who who plays up to people's expectations and, t- and flatters them and tells them what they want to hear, I don't know whether there is meant to be an element of Ronald Reagan. It may have been an inspiration for Hal Ashby, mm. and maybe in um, later versions of the script. But, I mean, I would disagree about chance flattering people he, he's he's very pleasant he's very well mannered yeah, yeah. Um, yes that's not, he's, he's, he's just say, nice he's, yeah. he's, just, he's just very nice and he's, yeah. he's just very sort of kind and he gets you know, distracted and all sort of help you know if there's a sort of a plant but that's where he's walking around in the city he's oh, out, yes, outside yes. the White House there's and he, he goes up to a policeman and says excuse me officer this this plant needs care could you let someone know thank you and, the, and he wanders off and the policeman picks up his radio and starts talking on it say, what, what's he going to say mm. <laughs> <laughs> send a watering can maybe I don't know yes yeah but he's but, pe- but people interpret his generally just pleasant mm. relaxed demeanour as being fr- as being friendly as, yeah. as, as being an ally yeah his, his, his bland platitudes yeah and, and that you know, you sort of think of Reagan's campaign in the 1984 election, which was its morning in America, and was just telling everybody in America that it was okay to be complacent. Yeah, and um, from what I hear, that it was around that time that his brain was starting to give out. Mm. It's not exactly a, a joke, uh, I, but there's the whole point about the president's arriving and you see him coming through some gates, and then there's like three minutes before the cars but and you just think they really do live in a massive estate it's just one of those kind of throwaway background details but it takes about three or four minutes for the president to, president to arrive at the front door the other thing that I liked is that the president waits for Ben to come mm. and it's it's very standard procedure that the president doesn't wait for people um, like for, for a phone call the president doesn't wait for you to come to the phone someone else phones you and then when you're on the line then the president comes and gets yeah. the call so the idea that the president is waiting somewhere for Ben to turn up, I mean, that demonstrates either that they have a very friendly relationship, and it's more on that level. In fact, Ben calls the president Bobby. Mm. 
or it's that Ben is so powerful that you know, yeah, kings, yeah. kings and princes will come to him. But they they talk, and, and Ben offers his opinion on current economic policy. And Charles, who's been asked in because they assume that he is this business leader, says, well, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about the prospects of growth? And he <laughs> comes up with this wonderful line, well, as long as the roots are not severed, then all will be well. And you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> but that's what... I mean, it's obviously the, the, the script has to work a little bit to, to, to make this... to accomplish this. But that's a good example of how he says something and then people just pounce on it and immediately... In fact, Ben actually says, oh, what I think he means is... blah blah, blah. And Exactly. And then when the next time the president appears on television and he says, I was meant to, to, to quote my friend Ben Rand's close advisor... Chancy Gardner, as long as the roots of industry are not severed, all you know, growth will be well in the, in the summer of our economy. And overnight, chance becomes something of media sensation, this yes. mysterious economic guru. And he's getting phone calls from the New York Times and the Washington Post, and he's invited to be on television. Mm. And again, um, a very, very... Uh, a really good joke where the housekeeper is watching Chance of Him on TV and she's furious. Because, yeah, because he's walked, he just, yeah. with nothing, yeah. he's walked straight into privilege yeah. and he's now being regarded as a guru. And, and, she, and she says, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's just a white man's world in America. Louise, the character, is not in the book. Oh, okay, that's interesting. That whole sequence that was invented for the film. Yeah, it's just interesting that some of the more sort of effective bits of the film were invented for the film. I know. Yeah, it makes me wonder exactly how much input Josie Kaczynski had into the, the finished script. He's credited as sole screenwriter. Apparently, the script was rewritten okay. by um, Robert C. Jones, I think his name is, who'd written Hal Ashby's previous film, Coming Home, which won a number of Oscars. So I think it, he'd added more of his own style and preoccupations. Mm. But uh, Chance, Chance is interviewed on television uh, because the vice president couldn't make it, and he's again he sort of again comes up with just bland, non-responses. Yes, that's good. And the presenter asks him, "Well, what do you think of the president's view on economic policy?" And he replies, "Which view?" Yes. And the audience falls about laughing because, and there's all... it's, it depends on how you how you view that statement yeah yeah because everybody just takes it as him uh, making fun of the president and the same thing when he comes into the studio he comes through the curtain and he stands there and the host has to call him across to and again the audience laughs because they just think this is somebody he's just doing he's just doing a bit yeah exactly yeah but he just, i mean he's been said well, go through this curtain and he does yeah and then well now what now i just look at this big wall full of people but w- watching the the, uh, this talk show at home is Thomas Franklin the lawyer mm. now this sequence I think it's sort of shuffled in the, in the, in the book the, the, the um, sequence of events is different so that occurs right at the end and Franklin watches on TV and he, he knows that face he can't quite place him where do I know that person from but in the film he recognises him straight away and says, what, well, what was he doing in that house what kind of He's clearly some big political or economic picture. What was he doing in that house? Uh, pretending he was a gardener. I mean, this is 
what what's going on? And meanwhile, the president is having chance investigated to find out who he is. Mm. Well, I've quoted him in a speech. Maybe we should do a background check with him to find out who on earth he is. Yes, and then you've got the CIA and the FBI frantically running around um, <laughs> trying to investigate him. And they, and they end up <laughs> their dossier that they hand him is it's a page. You, 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 see, you see very slightly. It's like two lines of text on a piece of it. Yeah, this goes back the last day and a half. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, again, and the head of the head of the CIA, the head of the FBI, summoned to the Oval Office, and they basically blame each other for the lack of information. Yeah, don't, don't they? Uh, the head of the CIA. In the end, they come up with a theory that somebody has shredded has, has yeah, shredded but, all documentation on him. That this is a some sort of. And I think the, the CIA believes it's an FBI plot, and the FBI presumably believes it's a CIA plot. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, Eve and Ben have been invited to a diplomatic function. And Ben, being as, as sick and as frail as he is, says that he can't go, but he would ask Chance to go in his place and accompany Eve. And Chance and Eve have actually become very friendly. Eve sees their relationship rather differently. Mm. But Chance... I th- he has this view of his relationship with other people that I like because, again, they have a very clever choice of video clips that play. Like, early in the... Um, when he's eating breakfast for the first time in the old man's house, he's watching Sesame Street. Hmm. And there's a, little, there's a segment where they're talking about friendship. And then later on, when he visits Chance in his bedroom at the Rand Estate... He's watching Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood, yes, yes. which is this great American institution of children's television. And uh, listen, if you're not aware of who Fred Rogers is, please read up about him because he seems like he seems a, a living saint. Yes, yeah, genuinely just the nicest. Nobody seems to have had a bad word to say against um, him. He's um, the host of this te- children's television programme that would just teach children about the world and just teach honest ki- kindness and generosity and sincerity. I love the fact that he was his his danger, as it were, was that he was actually a minister. Mm. But religion never came into it because you know, that's that's not as universal as relationships between human beings. There's a wonderful story I heard that he once had his car stolen, but when the thieves found out who it was, they washed it and brought it back. I would like to believe that that's the kind of story I'd like to believe about somebody because he was he was just so beloved. Yeah. Um, but it's on, on this program and. And Mr. Rogers sings a little song about friendship. And so the relationship that Chance has with Eve, it's, he, this is his new friend. And she's nice to him and she looks after him and they, they go out and he meets other people. And I think it's very sweet because he's, yeah, this, this is my friend. Mm. And, and it, she's described him to the doctor, hasn't They have a quick conversation and she describes him as very intense at one point. Because, yeah. again, she's projecting onto him what she wants to see from somebody. Because she, as, as it develops, she is actually very attracted to him. I think that he's intense in, insofar as he doesn't say much. Yeah. And he just looks at people. Because he, imita- he imitates what he sees. Um, but they go out in the, in the evening and... Um, at this uh, reception, Chance meets a Russian diplomat, played by Richard Basehart of Voyage of Voyage Is of that... Life. I, I yeah. saw Richard... But again... But but this Richard Dysart plays Dr. Allen, yeah. but Richard Basehart 
plays the uh, Russian diplomat. Because I will occasionally get distracted by trivia, I was watching the opening titles and it's like, oh, Richard Basehart's in this. And I was looking out for the commander of um, Seaview from Voyage. And it was this thing of thinking, where? And I, but I didn't twig. By the time the film had got through to that part, I'd forgotten that Richard Basehart was in it. You were actually absorbed in what was happening. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for some reason, I'd become involved in the story that was unfolding rather than looking for character actors from the 60s television. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he says that he says to Chance, oh, you know, uh, we're, we're not so similar, you and I. We're not, we're not so far apart. And Chance says, yes, our, our chairs are almost touching. And he interprets this to mean, oh, yes, mm. we, you know, it, was, it was a very symbiotic relationship the United States and Russia have. And so he, now he's now he's reaching across the Iron Curtain with this nothingness. Yeah, I mean, being if I'm going to be a bit grumpy, this is the one point in the film when I thought it stretched credibility a little bit, is when the Russian ambassador starts speaking to him in Russian, and somehow doesn't pick up that Chance doesn't understand anything that is, is being said to him. Well, Chance's response is just to sort of smile and and, and, and smile and nod, I suppose. Yeah, and um, they. Um, I don't think it's because the ambassador's another character. Yes, I, th- yeah. I think I think the uh, impression is that uh, this diplomat is some kind of espionage, sort of the the traditional cultural attaché yeah. figure. But he's very he's very charming and very pleasant. And he mentions um, Krilov's fables. Uh, this I had to look up. Ivan Krilov was a real writer okay. in uh, 19th century Russia, and is regarded as one of the great. Fabulists, one of those sort of storytellers in Russia, and sort of ranked about alongside Aesop and oh, uh, Jean La Fontaine, who I also hadn't heard of and had to look up. <laughs> so don't be too alarmed about that. No, no, no. Um, in terms of uh, telling traditional fables, and so sort of it gives a context to the rest of the movie that it's very much a, a fable of the the idiot and the the king, yeah. perhaps the fool who becomes the king. Also, when I, when I noted that down, suddenly it's popped into my head. Caspar Hauser. Refresh my memory. Caspar Hauser, which is a, a, the, the true story, was a young man who was found on the streets of Nuremberg in Germany in, I believe, the late 18th century. He was, I think, about 20 years old. He couldn't speak, but he had a piece of paper which explained that his name was Caspar Hauser. He was taken in by a local wealthy person. Mm. And as he learned to speak, he was able to explain that he had, in fact, spent his entire life, up until maybe a week before he was found, kept prisoner in a basement without any human contact. And one night he went to sleep. He was presumably drugged in some way, and he woke up free. Right. <laughs> um, no one was ever able to find out who he was because sometime later I can't again I can't remember how mm. going on my knowledge of the film version of this which was heavily embellished he was killed he was stabbed to death by an unknown assailant it has been speculated that it could be the same person who held him prisoner it could also be that it was self-inflicted and he did it deliberately because he was starting to become less of an interest to oh, right. the local intelligentsia and noble pe- noble nobility. So he did it just you to... You think he just intended to wound himself? Yeah, yeah. To, just to keep the, yeah. the interest alive. 
And I think that there is a certain element of chance that really reminds me of, the, of this story. He is the man from nothing who becomes yeah. the, the media sensation of the age. I suppose that's because obviously it's, we're never given any background to chance. And even, the, even the, the housemaid never really... She says that she's raised him since he was a boy, I think, at one point, yes. she says. But we're never given any context. Or I, I assume that in some way he's meant to be the illegitimate son of the old man or something. Um, well, the book hints towards this. It does state specifically that he was a foundling. Oh, okay. And that he was found on the steps of the old man's house. It could be that he was there because he was the man's son. It could be that it was simply because that was a well-to-do home mm. and whoever put Chance there knew that he would get be looked after. But he was named Chance because he was found by Chance. Yeah. But even so, he's, he's the man from nowhere. Yeah. And actually, just sprung to mind, um, John Merrick. Oh, right. What, the, uh, the elephant? The elephant, yeah, yeah. yes. Now, his, his background is well, that's well documented, and he wasn't a man from nowhere. But he was an oddity who mm. became the media sensation of the age, again, because of his, I wouldn't say deficiency, that's not really true, his, his excess of... His looks? His um, The fact that... You know, well, yeah. because, because, of, because of his deformity... Yeah. There are, the reason I know about all these stories is because I've seen the films about them. Well, of course, yeah. Because David Lynch is wonderful. For, actually, I read a, a non-fiction book about John Merrick, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And it's an extraordinary story. Um, and uh, absolutely tragic. The Again, The Elephant Man remains one of these things where I'm familiar with, with it because of the endless power days. So, Have you not know, seen the film? No, it's, it's not. heartbreaking. I, yeah, I could, but but all I've ever seen is sort of the end of and people doing the inevitable John Merrick impression and sort of yeah, that's one impression that I'm not going. I'm not go no, with I'm not. I thought that's no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go. But but you know, of lines of dialogue where he says things like, "Oh, you've all been very kind" and all those sorts of things. I'd actually use that line quite a lot, <laughs> but I don't do the voice. No, no, that's right. Um, but but anyway, just. It's become one of those... It, or for a while in the 80s, it was one of those films that everybody seemed to be parodying or referencing. So I kind of felt like I'd seen it by default. It is worth seeing. Mm. It's, I mean, it's a, such a weird departure for David Lynch to go from doing this Eraserhead, which was this insane experimental feature film. I saw it when I was about 15 and I hated it. I haven't seen it since then, but I realise now the folly of my youth <laughs> that it's actually an extraordinary piece of work but he then did uh, Mel Brooks saw it and thought Mel Brooks apparently saw it and immediately got it okay. in a way that I did and said oh it's, it's the nightmare of a man who's about to become a father but I mean at one point that's the whole, that's the whole movie suddenly alright oh, that's that's the key to the whole thing but if you watch the movie with that in mind the whole thing makes perfect sense because the whole film is a dream sequence I'd, I'd have to go back and rewatch it. I couldn't right. tell you when it, the last time was that I saw it. it. It, I saw it about twenty years. ago. I think I saw it a long time ago. And I mean, there's the 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 story that Mark Camo tells, isn't there, where he says that he went to see it with a friend, and the friend said, "Well, that's not very realistic." <laughs> <laughs> and I just, oh, I the, and, and, and in my book group, we read um, J.G. Ballard's High Rise <laughs> about um, civilization breaking down into savagery inside a tower block, and someone didn't like it because they thought it was they thought all oh, that never happened. It's a bit silly, yeah. But, well. It's a book. <laughs> it's still my other David Lynch fact, which I might as well attempt to crowbar in, is of course that wasn't he in line to do it, Return of the Jedi at one point? Yeah. 
And uh, it's actually, I, I can't remember in which other podcast we've mentioned this before, but there is a trailer online of David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. Very, uh. very cleverly selected shots and music to give an impression of what that would be like. That's... So Yoda talks backwards. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look that up. Um, I mean, it sounds like the, um, the spoof trailer that somebody did for The Shining, where it's re-edited as a kind of feel-good... Oh, yeah. Family film, which is a brilliant piece of work. It uses Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel as the soundtrack, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's one that I really loved, which was uh, Broke Back to the Future. Yeah, I don't think I've so seen that. A love, a love story about between Marty McFly and Doc Brown, which was actually really lovely because their relationship is so. Ah. It's like, like platonic life partners. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, they do love each other. They don't love each other in that way, but. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's closer to Doc than he is to his own family. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, so the reason I mentioned Mel Brooks incidentally about the Elephant Man is he produced the Elephant Man, but he deliberately didn't put his name on it because he didn't want people. To okay, think he was I didn't know. Yeah. Um, for the same reason that he also re- produced the remake of The Fly, wow. and he, I believe, he chose David Cronenberg specifically because he'd seen Cronenberg's previous work and thought this is the perfect person, and ended up being the biggest of Cronenberg's career. But he didn't put his name on it because he didn't want people thinking it was a parody. Yeah, I did, genuinely didn't know that. Mm. He's a very smart man. Yeah, yeah, it. absolutely. But the 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 Casper Hauser film is Werner Herzog's The Enigma of Casper Hauser. Okay. Which is, as I said, embellished because Herzog's relationship with the truth is always rather mm. flexible. But the, it, that's the original German title. I think is even better. It's called Everyone for Himself and God Against All. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a very Werner Herzog yeah. title. Is it one of his documentaries, or is it... Uh, no, it's, it's dramatised. Um, and he hired a, a mentally ill street musician to play Caspar Hauser. Okay. Because he's Werner Herzog, and he does that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yeah. So the president, the president finds out that 16 countries are looking into Chinese oh, yes. backgrounds. Everyone's trying to find out who he is, and there's, there's just nothing to find out. Um, Alan B. has essentially figured out uh, having actually, uh, Alan B has managed to meet with Ben Frank, Ben Franklin, Thomas Franklin, mm. and Frank's told him about you know, the meeting in the house. Alan B has sort of put everything together and realised chances. He's a he's a nothing. He's a he's a he's an, he's, an, he's a congenital idiot, and he's going to tell Ben. But he go, he goes to Ben's bedside, and he says that he's so happy. He's so much. Happier, more comfortable, knowing that chance is around, and that you know there's someone there for Eve. And that, you know, there's, there's a kind of stabilised influence, and Alan B mm. decides not to say anything. And that again goes back to what I was saying about there's almost no villains in this film because mm. that's you know that's obviously the moment that you know he doesn't want to upset. He doesn't want to upset Ben. He realises that, that regardless of who Chance actually is, he's been a positive influence. Yes. And so he keeps quiet. So and, he, and he knows that Chance, whatever Chance is doing, he's not doing it out of malice, mm. he's not doing it out of greed. He's just sort of... He's just there. He's yeah. just physically being there. Yes. Say the title, win a prize. Um, and people are just responding to him. So, and it's, I'd say he's even following the Hippocratic Oath. He's doing what's in the best interest of his patient. Mm. So no, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Chance is doing no harm. If something changes, then I'll do something about it then. Meanwhile, Eve throws herself at Chance. Yes. How did you feel about 
Now, there's a kind of a sex scene there where she tries to seduce Chance, and Chance, having, as, as Louise actually says, having rice pudding for brains, doesn't really react until the Thomas Crown affair comes on TV. Oh, is that a, what it is? It's a very sexy kissing scene, and he kisses her passionately. Yeah, and the and spins her around. And he spins, yeah, because there's the, because the, the circling camera, around, yeah. thing, and he just spins her around on the yeah. spot. Well, this is then when this... Because in the reception, there's already been the joke where Chance is talking to the gay guy. And yeah. says something about, is there a TV upstairs? And the gay guy misunderstands and assumes he means transvestite. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's deliberate. Uh, I, mean, I think that's a, a joke that has grown into the movie with the passage of the oh, year. possibly, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but then it comes out... I, I love the way he just flat out says, so, Mr. Gordon, have you ever had sex with a man? <laughs> well, it's... <laughs> and, 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 then, and then Chance of... Sort of knots his head and sort of is imitating what people look like mm. when they're thinking. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and then, of course, comes out with a line about, I like to watch. I like to watch. And he says, Oh, no, wait here, I'm going to go get Warren. <laughs> and he says that to me. And yeah. He says, I don't chance. I don't, t- t- tell me what you like. He says, I like to watch. So she lies down on a bearskin rug and, in I think a very tastefully shot. Yeah. Sequence masturbates while Chance is still watching TV, yes, watching a yoga program. It's an odd scene. I mean, uh, what what it makes you realise is how used you get to generic sort of Hollywood love scenes, mm. where you know the hero claims his woman and they go off to bed, and you'll get a couple of minutes of soft focus grinding or something, yeah. and. The, the the sequence in being sorry I had to choose my words very carefully and I don't think I've said this before I am in danger of referring to being there as being human because I have no idea why I find the two titles just constantly get mixed up in my head but the sequence in being there is weird it's very intimate in a way that um, sex scenes often aren't in films and because it's such a departure from what you normally see, it feels oddly explicit. It's not. Um, in fact, if anything, it's less explicit than, you know, I don't think she even undresses, does she? She's wearing a nighty. Yeah. And the way the scene is blocked and physically laid out within the the, the room, that you, there is no nudity, there's no... No. I mean, it's... And you have to sort of think for a moment, oh, actually, that's what she's doing. Mm. She's actually masturbating. Um, it's it's very cleverly laid out. I mean, yeah. the film is rated twelve yeah, on yeah. DVD. Uh, does it say on the back why? No, it doesn't. Because they thought, well, how can we how can we do this so that it's not weird? Yeah. So and and the context of the scene, it's a great liberation for her because I mean, Eve loves Ben a great deal and he loves her, but he's a very old man and he's very sick. He can't provide. What a yeah, yeah. man can. I, again, we're trying to be as tasteful as the film is about this. And Chance, even though he's a lot younger, I mean, assuming that he's supposed to be about seven or he's in his early fifties. Yeah. He isn't capable of it because no, he's, he's never going because to his brain it. doesn't work. But she shares this closeness with him because, with one hand, she's reaching out, and holding onto his leg where he's sitting on the end of the bed. And so she has that moment of of sexual connection with somebody. And she's, la- she's laughing mm. as she's doing it. 
Yeah, it's uh, all I can say is it's it's one of the more intimate sex scenes I've seen, and it's yeah. not a sex scene. It's and, and, that's, and it's because there's two people in there, and one yeah. of them isn't even paying attention. No, and that's it's in theory it should be the complete opposite because yeah, Charles is just sitting there flicking. In fact, yes, he goes off and tries to practice yoga on the bed, He's doing a handstand, yeah, um, and it leads on the next morning to a great scene on the balcony where Eve is waxing lyrical about how it's unlocked the seasons of her she's got this very very florid speech about how it's unlocked her and and then the doctor comes in and Chance just kind of wanders off yeah and and again it's this you realise that he's having this tremendous emotional impact on people without actually it affecting him in return. No, he isn't. He just isn't capable of no. of processing anything. But um, he actually, just as a little detail, it was that scene that led to the original choice for Ben Rand turning down the role. Who was the original choice? Laurence Olivier. Okay. He did, he said he didn't want to be in a film in which Shirley MacLaine masturbates. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose it depends. I, when you, if you're just given the script to to read, yes, you can. I, I can see how a sequence like that could potentially give you concern because you've no idea how it's going to be staged. Yeah. Um, it seems like a slightly odd, po-faced reaction, but um, I, I'm not sure I can imagine. But William, I'm going to forget his name. Mel- William, Melvin Douglas is William Douglas. Mm. William Melvin, Melvin Douglas, um, actually won the Oscar for Best yeah. Supporting Actor for his yeah. performance as Ben Rand. He's he's very he's very natural. He doesn't ever feel like he's saying dialogue. No, and I don't. I, I'm not sure that that Lawrence Olivier. He can be natural. Oh, he yeah, could yeah. be rather, but. His performance did vary depending on the material. He presumably, could, he he'd have to, presumably he'd have to put on an American accent. And OK, obviously he's an actor and he can do all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's him in Marathon Man, isn't it? Yeah, really? he's, he's playing German. We're playing sort of generic stage school German, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't know if that would have... I don't know if he would have been the right actor for that part. Again, I'm not sure if he might have been too well known, and he might have distorted the film a bit. Well, you have Shirley MacLaine. No, I suppose this is true. And yeah, and she was a pretty, she was a big star. She was a big star, and it was, a, it was apparently a surprise that she was willing to take what is effectively a supporting role. Hmm. Although, it, I mean, she's in the film almost all the way through. But saying about the accent, um, Chance's speaking voice. Uh, they do mention specifically that they um, analysed recordings of his voice, and they can't work out where he's from. Hmm. What did you think of Peter Sellers' voice? It's very... I mean, it is very flat. It's... He's not really attempting an accent at all. I mean, well, no, that's not true. To my ears, he's not attempting an accent, but that's probably because he's speaking with an English accent. He isn't. He's speaking with an American accent. Man, okay, maybe I'm projecting stuff onto him then. But the interesting part is he had... He was deliberately patterned his voice after a specific person and then put a a very bland, vague American accent on top of that. Mm. And when I tell you the name of the person, I think it's going to unlock a lot (laughs) thought about the movie. Stan Laurel. Okay, yeah, actually that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. If they'd made this movie in the 30s... Yeah, yeah, you can... Probably, they would have probably left out the masturbation. But you can imagine Stan <laughs> Laurel... Fatty Arbuckle in, but yeah. Um, you can imagine Stan Laurel playing that character. Yes, oh, absolutely, and yeah, definitely. Very, very well, the double-breasted suits, of course. Yeah, it's... Very, very pleasant and well-mannered. No, that's interesting. A lot of stuff suddenly falls into place when you say that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> You've just blown my mind. I know. Ben dies. And... Chance and Dr. Allenby are at his bedside. And before he passes away, Ben says he asks Chance to stay on, to stay with Eve. Mm. And also that he's told his associates all about Chance and that they want to meet him. And Allenby asks, asks him, you are just a gardener, aren't you? Yes. But as he's speaking, Chance is actually crying. Mm, yeah, he's gone red eye. It's what the only time you see any emotion, isn't it? Yes, and I think it's just because he's he underst- he understands that Ben is dead, mm. and that he's gone, but that he's lost his friend. Yeah, yeah, it's because he, he he does have that you know, this this most basic thing is that he's sad that someone he who has been nice to him is now gone. Mm. And he, un- I mean, he understands the process, or he's learned about the process of death, because obviously he asks Eve, "Are you going to close the house down when Ben dies?" Yeah. And again, she just takes this as an as an example of him being incredibly intense, but it's lit- no, it's just a literal question. Yeah. And she said no. Hmm. But um, he walks away, and he says he's going to go and tell Eve that Ben is dead. I mean, and, and Allenby says, "I understand." And that's I. It's that's slightly oddly directed, things, but it's a deliberate echo mm. that Allenby realizes. Yeah, when he says, "I understand," those are just noises yeah, that he yeah. makes. It doesn't mean anything. So then we finally the the final sequence is Ben's funeral, and his eulogy is being read by the president, and he says, you know, "I know Ben wanted this to be kept small and simple." And as you say that, there is a jet flyover. And again, that ties back to what you were saying about the plane flying over the garden. So it's that nice bookend of mm. planes flying over a garden because the, the Rand estate is this gigantic... And it's a, it's a real estate. Yeah, it's, yeah, it belongs to the Vanderbilt family in North Carolina. And it's this, this woods everywhere. And they have, they have, at one point, you've shown chance around the gardens and this beautiful garden with greenhouses. And it's absolutely sensational. And the president reads a series of platitudes, and I feel that they are platitudes yes, rather they than are. aphorisms, which I consider a higher class of phrase um, that Ben had coined, and the one about people on welfare. Mm. And again, it's it's people seeing brilliance in simplicity or even in the absence of yeah or just yeah. or because Ben is a rich and powerful man therefore everything he says must be brilliant exactly and, and, it's and because people assume that Chance is a great thinker because of how he has happened to present yeah. himself his words are deemed to be the voice of the oracle yeah I mean there's actually a, a, one of the 
things that the president will, reads out is a line about saying about I was born in tr- tremendous wealth or something. It wasn't. I oh, forget exactly. Me. But it it kind of puts it into context that that Ben Rand is somebody that, as you say, he has no time for people on welfare. Well, he has no experience of people on welfare. He's lived in tremendous luxury all his life, and yet he's able to pronounce on how the poor should be living their lives. He's not necessarily a bad person, but he's a bit thoughtless. <laughs> I think yes. at one point he has a comment about how he's tried to keep in touch with the common man or something, doesn't But we uh, never see any evidence of that. No. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, and I think it's, it's actually said as he walks into a room with all his, his servants and butlers, and you realise that that's Ben's idea of the common man, is the people that are there to wait on, to, to wait on him. Yeah. With men, oh, I, I believe when they're having dinner, all the wait staff are black. In fact, I, might well, as well, I forgot to mention this at the time, so I may as well mention it now. There's a fascinating choice of shot in that dinner sequence because the camera's put at an angle where you can see Ben and Eve and you can see the serving stuff, but Peter Sellers is obscured from the camera. He's actually hidden behind a chair. But it, it's obviously not accidental because the shot is held for about a minute or so and Peter Sellers delivers lines of dialogue while he's obscured from the camera. And it's... It's just a really... It's an interesting editing choice. Mm. Well, as the, um, the pallbearers carry Ben's coffin towards his tomb, which is a... It's got a big eye on it. It's a giant Masonic symbol. Yeah. It's on the dollar bill. the seeing eye on the top. I think, well, yes. Yeah. Obviously, it's, go- it's going to be a Masonic tomb with the word Rand written on yes. to symbolise... All the things that that can symbolise, but the all-seeing eye. Mm. But it's the pyramid that's on American money, of course. Exactly, yeah, yeah. which is weird. But you've got to put something. I mean, what are you going to put on a picture of a, a picture of a lady? Or yeah, <laughs> some countryside. About, uh, no, yeah, how about a picture of some countryside? How about a picture of a great American author, mm. Walt Whitman, or Edgar Allan Poe, or one of the other Dorothy. three? Yeah, yeah. H.P. Lovecraft. Well, have you heard about that? No, um, there's a, there's, a, there's um, uh, an award in um, fantasy writing um, for some great fantasy f- fiction, which is a, a little bust of H.P. Lovecraft, and they have officially discontinued that particular design because of how much of a racist H.P. Lovecraft was. <laughs> they're going to carry on giving out the award, but it's they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're saying we're not going to have anything to do with that anymore. Yeah. Downplay that, I suppose. Yeah, so, that's that's so now that I don't think they'd want to put him on money now. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, but there's other people they can put on there. They can put on um, hey, the guy that wrote Star Trek Into Darkness, yeah, <laughs> great American writer. Then, um, I'm sure I can think. Of, oh, uh, Mark Twain, yeah, Mark Twain could go Perfect. on there. Dorothy on the Parker the could go on. Um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, yeah, no, I know who you mean, and I Sacagawea. Mm. There's lots of people. Yes, there is no shortage of people. But now we have the final scene. This sequence is done in the book. Chance to disappears from the last ten pages of the book, and we follow people just from the impact that Chance has had on them. And the original final scene, as it was scripted, Chance wanders away from the funeral, losing interest, walks around in the woods, and. Eve follows after him and meets him. And Eve says, I was looking for you. 
And Shep says, oh, I, was, I was looking for you too, Eve. And they walk off together into the snow. While they were shooting, it was going very well. Sellers was, as was, this was his dream project. And it was all going perfectly. He was on his best behaviour. And it was going so well that Hal Ashby wrote to someone, wrote to a friend, saying, you know, everyone is working so perfectly, so clearly. It's just absolutely, it's like walking across a, you know, a, a mill pond. It's absolutely still. And that gave him the thought for the final scene of the movie. Chance walks up to the, the lakeside. He helps, lifts a branch off a, a little tree that's struggling. Mm. And he then... Seeing the house in the distance, he starts to walk towards, walk towards it, stepping off the shore onto the surface of the water and walking across the surface of the lake. And at one point he stops and measures the depth of the water to see how deep it is as well. Well, well I think he, he's umbrella. just seeing, oh, this isn't, yeah. this isn't solid, and he pushes his umbrella yeah. through the, the surface, and it goes all the way down, and, it's... and then he just carries on walking, and then we just cut to black, and it's the end. It's an odd suit. I mean, it, it very, as, as the... As Peter Sellers was standing in front of the lake, looking after the tree, it kind of sparked a memory. I thought, "Oh, is this the film with that ending?" And the answer is yes. It almost distorts the rest of the film because the rest of the film up to that point has been pretty naturalistic, and then you suddenly got this non sequitur of an ending that that kind of comes from nowhere. And I kind, I. I I almost don't know how to react to it. I mean, you have to accept that it's there on screen, so within the world of the film it happens. But I don't know... I almost don't know what it means or what it's attempting to say. I I mean, I can imagine that they put it in just because it's a nice image, that he's there, the shortest route back to the house is over the water. So um, he walks... it weirdly it reminds me of a joke from the third series of Arrested Development where, <laughs> oh yes where um, a Michael is dating um, somebody who everyone assumes is English she is English she is English that's it um, but actually she's got learning difficulties but because nobody because, because, because nobody realises she's got learning difficulties everybody talks about and maybe is working as a film executive and she's got this horrible film that she's trying to sort out script problems on where they've got two people on either side of the ocean and, and this character goes well why don't they just walk and and, and everybody sort of sees and, and I think they end up producing a film called The Ocean Walk or yes but the, when the character leaves, mm, she, walks. She, she walks across the surface of the swimming pool yeah. and everyone's... So the, Michael and um, Job are watching and they're both sort of... Wait, what? And, and, um, and Michael says to Job, is that your trick? And Job so, goes, no. And then it cuts to black. Yeah, yeah. And then we have the, the standard of, oh, next one arrested development, yeah. which is the, the little tag scene. And it cuts back to... It's my illusion, which is a recurring, which is, a recurring gag in the show. I, I'd been wavering. I, I really, really like Arrested Development, but I'd been wavering in my love for the series at that point because I hated the whole storyline with this ca- this character, who's I can't again. I can't remember her name, and I hated the fact that they kept referring that they were kind of making fun of somebody that had learning difficulty. I felt it was kind of in slightly dubious taste. I didn't think it was. I think. I mean, the characters. In Arrested Development, are all they're all horrible people. Yeah. The point of the character, um, 
I can't remember the character's name either, but she, her, she's played by Charlie's Theron, yeah. so it's quite a big name to get for a sitcom. But she's English, mm. and people assume that her slightly odd child yeah. like the world. Oh, that's just because she's English. English. You know what? Oh, they're so excited. And there's a lot me. of running jokes about a place called Wee Britain, and there's a lot of people with slightly dodgy English accents. And it, I was getting flashbacks to Daphne's relatives from Fraser and stuff. So the point when she turns around and walks across the water and, and Michael says, was that your trick? And he says, no. And it fades to black. Utterly destroyed my faith in Arrested Development. And then two seconds later, it comes back and he goes, it's my illusion. And it's like, I love you again. This is the greatest thing. It's just, it's, it's the only moment when I think I've absolutely done a 360... Uh, a th- 180 <laughs> sorry went slightly too far in, slightly too far in my geometry there uh, it's the only time I've literally done a 180 and, and I've gone from oh I hate this series to this is the greatest series ever um, but it it all kind of I, I wonder if that whole sequence was inspired by I have, being, there's no doubt in my mind yeah it's suddenly it's when you suddenly think of the two together they're so similar it's, it's yeah my interpretation of the ending was that Chance is a vacancy. Mm. He is a, he's an absence. There is nothing there other than a physical shape and a mirror that other people see their own reflection in. So when he's walking across the water, it's because there's nothing of him there. He's not bound by the forces of gravity and the forces of the world. Yeah, he just—he's not—he's not real. Yeah, I sense. mean, I think I'd, the obvious sort of metaphor for it is a sort of Christ metaphor because of you know walking on water and stuff. But I don't think there's nothing else in the film to imply that kind of thing um, to, to imply that that's the kind of metaphor they were aiming for. It, I, I, it's just odd because it comes out of nowhere. And I, I just genuinely found I didn't know how to react to it. Um, I think that's a good response to have because it's keeping you thinking about what you've seen. I think it's more. I mean, the original ending with just, it's just an ending. It's, it's just sort of well, we need to just put a full stop on hmm. this, and then it stops because the story, the storyline as a whole, has resolved very neatly, and with now with the idea that Chancey is going to end up being the president, hmm. and he's going to be. At the, at the whim of the, pow- the powerful people, whoever, the, whoever these yeah. bearers of Ben's coffin are, makes perfect sense within the story. And as you said, with Ronald Reagan becoming president the following year, well, there we are. Yeah. But just to put the little button on the end of it, that you know, after at the end of this all, chance isn't really a, a person. Yeah, no, I that's mean, true. We've, we've spoken before about in THX one one three eight that the character, most of the characters in it aren't people because they, there's, there's an absence where they're, what their soul mm. what you might call their soul should be they're just humans Chant isn't even that yeah he's not even he's not capable of anything other than being there I mean you say the film ends the film doesn't end because it then cuts to an outtake yeah and I think listen to me telling directors how to edit their films I think it's a mistake because a, the film ends on this very peculiar image and then suddenly 
And now here's a look behind the scenes of the. Yeah. And uh, Sellers hated that, and he. I'm, I, I'm not I, surprised. But he was on the verge of a lawsuit to try and get them to change it back. Uh-huh. The original end credits are on the VHS release, and it's the credits run over static. Oh uh, yeah, that. The, but there are there are two pieces of music that recur all the way through the movie. There's two piano pieces, and one is quite light and upbeat, and one is more downbeat. And it's the, the light upbeat one. Right. And it's it just sort of. It's a nice and gentle tune to sing about. And instead we have these outtakes of a single scene, which isn't in the finished movie. No, that's the other thing, actually. Um, and in isolation, I think they're pretty funny. Because it's Sellers just trying to get through the hmm. speech of reciting what the black gang said to him earlier. And it's saying, oh, and they said, then they said, I'd better get my ass out of there quick, or they'd cut it. I think of Stan Laurel saying that. Hmm. And it's pretty funny because he keeps corpsing and yeah. he just can't get through without laughing. And in isolation, it's hilarious. But as Sellers said at the time, it breaks the spell of the movie. And it, if it turned up, if these outtakes had turned up on It'll Be Alright in the Night mm, or, on or, a DVD. or on a DVD, it would have been fine. But it needs to be all of a piece. It has to function as a, uh, a contained whole mm. and keep a consistent tone and like if, it, like if it's from the end of a zany comedy then that's fine but it, in fact work. oddly enough it would have worked with the ending with him walking off into the distance with Eve because I don't think that's that's just a that's not as profound no it's not as thought provoking an ending and so you could have ended the film with them just wandering off and you accept that fine they're going to go on and have a future oh and here's something funny that happened when we made the film that would have been fine, but I think it's specifically with the walking on water ending. I think that's where it clashes. But apart from that, apart from that misstep, you thought it was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, and I got it, very wrapped up in that. I think it's uh, oddly neglected, given that it uh, it should it should be regarded as I think a, a great mm. masterwork almost. Certainly, it's. The, I mean, Peter Sellers saw it as the, the the culmination of his work. Yeah. And he died less than a year after it was released. It's tragic, I think, that it's been neglected. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 strange. It's it's very. It's a shame that it's it's not better remembered. In a way, Peter Sellers had a kind of less successful version of Robin Williams' career, in that Robin Williams also did the same thing of trying to make films that were profound and were comedies, but Robin Williams just had a longer run at it and mm. was probably able to do it with a greater degree of success. Well, at least if we play this podcast enough people, we'll be able to uh, increase the movie's reputation. Yes. Thanks to Chris Arnsby for his hospitality and for making the time to appear on this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me at cinema underscore limbo via Twitter. Or if you have any messages for me personally, it's at J underscore J underscore Phillips, with two L's. However, until next time, remember, this is just like television, only you can see much further. Goodbye! You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnos Podcast Network, Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.